0: To the Driven by Diversity podcast. I'm Mariana, And I'm Steph. And every week we shine the spotlight on underrepresented groups in the world of racing. Our guests share their journey into the sport and also delve into what diversity and inclusion means to them. We hope that we can provide you with real role models who you can relate to and who represent you. And more than that, that
1: you'll feel inspired and encouraged to know that you can make it in motorsport, no matter your background. A long and distinguished career in sports medicine, physiotherapy and rehabilitation is on the CV of today's guest. Not only in elite sport, but within the RAF and NHS too. More specifically in the motorsport world, our guest is probably most known to Avid F1 fans as Mark Webber's former physio at Red Bull. But prior to this, he worked closely with world rally legends Colin McRae and Carlos Sainz Sr. Growing up as first generation born to Jamaican parents in what was a turbulent era for black Britons, he tells of having to endure racist abuse early on in his career, particularly in professional football, both as player and physio. Not only this, he witnessed the infamous glass ceiling effect around him too, but refused to accept this as his fate and pushed through to forge his own path to achieving what he never thought possible as a young boy leaving home. Today, We're sharing with you the story of the fantastic Roger Cleary.
0: Thank you for joining us, Roger. We're really excited to chat with you today and hear more about your career. So people that follow Formula One will know you as Mark Webber's former physiotherapist, but could you tell us a bit about what your current role entails?
2: Um, So my current role at the moment, I'm outside of motorsport so I've got a physiotherapy business mm-hmm. um and in my day-to-day role as treat the lay person to the professional sportsman really whoever comes through the door um probably the most appropriate time for me to be in this this field of, of work because the diversity excuse a pun <laughs> of um of injuries and people that come through the door so it's yeah great time great time
0: and when you were working with Mark, what was your day-to-day role like then? Was it drastically different, well, I imagine it was, um, to what you're doing now?
2: Yes. Yeah, so if I start, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in the middle and then I'll work backwards. So people have asked me why I didn't get involved or would I have liked to have got involved in Formula 1 earlier in my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say that all the things I did earlier in, in my career It was better for me to have done those things before getting into Formula One. Mm -hmm. So working in professional football, for example, a physical training structure in the Air Force, for example, all those things. I worked in rallying. So I looked after the late Colin McRae and Carlos Saints. All those things. I always wanted to look after one athlete. And believe it or not, I used every inch or ounce of experience I gained from those previous things in that one role. So a typical sort of day or what we would do at the track is essentially looking after the driver, make sure that there's nothing there really that's going to stress him really. So I'm sort of sitting on the tail end of the dog and I'm trying to keep the nose as steady as possible. So you look after his kit, you make sure that the uh, his kit's all laid out. You'll make sure that um, I would keep a serial code of all of the pieces of the kit that he has, including the firewear underwear. So we know how many times it's been used and also if you won a particular race like we won Monaco for example the serial code of the suit the underwear the balaclava the gloves the boots all of that is recorded and he can then take that out of circulation which a lot of them do and that then becomes his pride and joy that he recalls from that one event and I could they tell him right this helmet has covered this many races it's done this many laps um, we would uh, so you'd make sure that his boots and one of the most important thing for a driver is their feet so you'd want to know how many laps for example a pair of boots has has done so in testing they've done 60 laps in this particular test he's done 100 laps and I would then break in two or three different pairs of boots to make sure that if we went to a track and there was a problem and you had a different pair of boots I could use and we would it would basically be seamless so you're trying to keep him as, as, as steady as possible and that includes food making sure he eats at the right time. Um, he gets to the meetings on time. Um, if he's in an engineering meeting, he's got an interview, he's got to get to, I'll try and give him a knock. Um, and you know, I've got a list of those things in front of me and I'm just working to that list. So um, I'm kind of working in the background, supporting him really. And then if the team come along and they wanted to do sign some additional pictures or anything like that, for example, uh, or it's been a request that's coming from something, from the team to do something additional. If he's not in a good mood, then I might think, say to the team, you know what, well, actually, probably now's not the best time. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't step over the mark. If there's a need, I'd speak to his management. But if if, if it was something which I clearly knew wasn't a good time, uh, if you know, it was clearly evident that uh, it documented the sort of problems we had in, in, with Red Bull, with racing against Sebastian so on a ta- on occasions there might be things that happen in a team where he may not be in the best of moods with the team mm-hmm. so I would then if the team master has something additional I'd probably think probably not a good idea that I'd sway them to a different day for example um so I hope that I'm not going around in circles mm-hmm. but essentially you're trying to keep the driver on on the straight path of really so when he gets in the car he's got a clear mind
1: fascinating hearing you talk about your role with Mark Webber as a physiotherapist in Formula 1 it sounds like such a varied and in-depth role it's not just you know your your typical physiotherapist role or what you know a layman might might think is a physiotherapist role so it's really interesting to hear sort of the the bits and pieces that you actually got up to and your roles and responsibilities now you also mentioned that you had previously worked with Colin McRae and of Science rally legends in their own right. How did your role differ there than compared to in Formula One?
2: So my opportunity to get into rallying was whilst I was working in professional football. So two complete contrasts of sports and if I'm allowed to use the right word, animals in terms of the athlete themselves and how you would handle them. So, you know, professional football arrives on a match day with a Louis Vuitton wash bag and everything's (laughs) laid out, you know. Um, You arrive in uh, and rallying, you know, you go to the hillside of a mountain, it's throwing it down with rain, it's muddy, it's dirty, it's cold. Um, And, you know, you've you've, same sort of ideas in in rallying, probably less – less intense Mm -hmm. if that's the right word i'd probably use yeah and a lot of your work is done prior to the race so in rallying we would arrive one week before the event Mm -hmm. we'd arrive on a monday for a week event and they would recce i go out in the car and just go through the course and go through the pace notes to make sure the pace notes corresponded to the course and nothing had changed that's when you do most of your work and then when it comes to the actual event, uh, it was just making sure you had the, you know, if the car was to stop working, that you'd be in the right location to, or you know, if there's an issue with the helmet, you could give them a new helmet. So it, it's that sort of um, scenario. On a race day, I might, for example, uh, a typical day would be, I might wake up, so give Carlos Saints a, ra- a ring at quarter past four in the morning, we go out for a run, come back, 20 minutes of stretching. he said fine. Give Colin a call at whatever time it'd be probably five o'clock. We're down for breakfast at 5:30. We're out in the cars at quarter past six. And he's away at twenty-five past six to you know, and he's got an hour's drive to the start of the event and away he goes. And and then essentially the rest of my work is is done, unless you get in a situation where they crash, as in course. So in Corsica, for example, where Colin at a, a serious crash which was again my first event and oh, wow. um so that so that i was told you know so a friend of mine bernie shrewsbury uh he uh he said to me roger come on come on, do some work in rally and i said bernie i've, I've never worked in motorsport before he said roger you'd be fine it's sport you'd be fine i said what if the crash roger they never crash trust me they never crash oh,
0: famous last words. <laughs> typical <laughs> exactly
2: so the first event yeah so it was uh, and it was uh it was a uh, quite a serious crash as well so You know, um, so yeah, baptism of fire right in the deep end.
0: You've had a really good experience across various sports in your career and they all sound fascinating. The difference even between formula one and rallying is super, super interesting. But prior to that, what was it that initially drew you into physiotherapy? Was it a field that you always saw yourself going into? How did that come about?
2: So I'm 52 years of age and in my time. First born generation, my my parents from Jamaica. When you finish school, you didn't go to university, you went to work. Mm-hmm. So I started out trying to be a young professional footballer, as a lot of young kids want to be. And I was unfortunate not to make it. In some respects, I say unfortunate. In some respects, maybe fortunate as time has gone on. And I then went off and I joined the Air Force. I, I was studying <laughs> Um, at college and I just really I'd go away and I'd train one day a week and uh, and then play in the matches at the weekends and in the holidays, train each day. And I kind of came to the realization that this team aren't going to take me on. So maybe I'm just not good enough. So maybe I'll go and do something else. So um, I always wanted to be a PE teacher, got fed up of, of studying. I thought, well, that's the next best thing. Join the Air Force as a physical training instructor. I managed to get in. I was fortunate. Got in. And it was at that time, I always wanted to do some massage. I don't know why. I just thought, well, I might do a massage course. So I was based down in the suburbs of London, and uh, Buckinghamshire. So I, I found myself on a course and went into London. I didn't really tell any others. So, you know, I was a young, I was very young when I joined up. So as young as I could possibly be. And at uh, 17 and a half, so at 18 and a half, I was a Corporal Physical Training Instructor in the Air Force, which was pretty young at that time. Yeah. Um, and so if you imagine you're around 20 other sportsmen, and if you've been around in a sporting environment yourself, so the jokes are cracking around. So I didn't tell anyone what I was doing. I just went off at the weekends and did this course. And the only person I ever spoke to about it was a chap called Robin Brew, who was at the time in the Great Britain triathlon team. He was an Olympic swim captain in about 1984, around about then with the Olympics. Yeah. And uh, he offered me the opportunity to come and, do some work experience with the Great Britain Triathlon team. And I took that opportunity and I essentially worked with them for four years. Uh, Didn't get paid, uh, no money in triathlon at that time. And so the opportunity to kind of get into, I I, I had no desire to be a physio. You know, when I left the Air Force, I worked in London. I was a personal trainer. I did some sports massage. Uh, I did some basic sports injuries. Um, I was working at West Ham Football Club. And the physio said to me, Roger, if you want to be a physio in football, you need to go and do a physio degree because although there's a lot of sports therapists in football, they're moving away from that. And I'd never given a, one inkling of a, a thought about being a physio. Uh, and I thought, I went away and I thought about this. I thought, you know, actually, I, I do need to do some more studying because I was getting work from clients I couldn't deal with. So I knew I need to do some more studying. I thought, what's the best next best thing, right? And the person who taught me to in my sports massage course was an osteopath. And at the time I, I thought, well, yeah, okay, that may be the the way forward. But for me, the, the, the fees are associated to the osteopathy at, like chiropractic at that time, you know, um nineteen ninety two, ninety one, ninety brand right there, it was about forty thousand pounds. Mm, it was wow. for the select.
0: Wow, and yeah. the
2: rich. Yeah, exactly. And it's not what I said at the time, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: Something so, a bit stronger than that. <laughs> exactly, yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> um so it was for the rich and the, and and the select so and, I, and unfortunately i wasn't in that that ballpark so and i'm not saying that i that physiotherapy was the the lesser but it was what i fell towards because i could get trained the nhs would yeah. pay for me and so i made that choice i finished my business went back to college and i i and it was a big risk at the time um because my business in london was going all right and i was you know i had uh, a client. And again, I don't like to name drop, but just to kind of give the the sizable change that I needed to make and, and the risk to take. So one of my clients was James Kahn, for example, from Dragon's Den. He was one of my clients. I was working with Frank Bruno, you know, I was working at West Ham Football Club, you know, I had quite a, a, a select um, a number of clients that were I would see regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I decided to go off to college and I had to finish the business because it was a full commitment, it was a it was a risk, so failure yeah. wasn't an option,
1: yeah yeah, so it was through your friend then that you got into elite sports and working with professional sports teams and was it just from from that initial sort of experience within Triathlon that led you on to go on to the other sort of fields that you worked in within sport
2: um f- so from the working with the Great Britain Triathlon team, that's where I managed to gain some additional clients when I left the Air Force. Um, however, in the latter stages of my career, or, or after I'd worked in professional football. So if you imagine once I, once I if I go back to when I was at university, so at university, you've got to pay your way. Fortunately, I could play football. So I played a bit, I, worked, I was semi-professional football, earned a bit of money, pay my way through. When I finished university, I contacted the Football Association. I said, look, can I go on some of your, mailing, some of your courses? And they said, yeah, I'll put it in the mailing list. So I said, look, can you send us your CV? So I said, why not? So I sent my C V to them. And about two weeks later, I got a, a phone call, um, you know, from Lincoln City Football Club. Uh, you know, do you want to come for an interview for a job? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about, what job? And I thought it was, I thought it was gonna be related to me playing football. I was, yeah, me, <laughs> this stage of my life play, you know, but it wasn't. It was um it was to uh, to be it was a physiotherapy role. So I said, Where do you get my C V from? They said, Well, we got it from the Football Association and we, and we just had a look, we thought you'd be you could be appropriate to come and have an interview. So I thought, well, I'll come out for the for the experience. Bear in mind I would just left physiotherapy school, so I was three months out of school. Yeah. However, I was a mature student, so I was twenty-four when I went to university, twenty-seven when I finished. So and I had a little bit of knowledge from from sports. Uh, in, in the in terms of the environment of treating athletes um, I got the job what do I do now so right I was in I was really in a in a, in a pickle because I take the job I only been there three months so I sat my I went back sat down with my physiotherapy manager I said look I'm not messing you around I genuinely did not apply for this job <laughs> but this is a situation um, and he said take the job I said mm. because you can always come back in the NHS and these opportunities don't come along very often It was the best advice that I ever received and I took the job and that's when things progressed from there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You never know where things are going to lead and if you've got an offer like that, it's it's hard to turn that down, especially – when, you know, you go on to something else and then you look back and start regretting the fact that you didn't go on and, you know, accept accept a job that could have taken you places. But luckily, you accepted it um, and you went on to experience lots of amazing things within your field. So looking at the state of the field currently in terms of physiotherapy and performance coaching in motorsport specifically... What advice would you give to anyone wanting to follow your footsteps in in the current age?
2: I think the advice that I would give is the same points that Steffi just, you know, you just mentioned. Really, that um, there are opportunities sometimes may come your way, and you're not expecting those opportunities. And although I couldn't see the bigger picture, I couldn't necessarily see that yes, it was going to lead to this and. You know, one I've had the young physios working with me and, you know, I've always advised them sometimes that you, you, you sometimes have to work and not have an expectation of, a, of something coming back your way. Mm-hmm. Cause I worked with that great Britain and team for four years and I didn't get anything, mm. you know, so I didn't get any penny. What I got was experience. And from that, that's how then everything else is, you know, 20 years later, it came back to me. Yeah. You know, so the advice I'd give to any young aspiring black Asian minority is when I join the air force and I build a picture. So we've all watched the movies and we see the Sergeant major and he's normally he's big. He's got his big chest. He's got a bald head. <laughs> but in this experience I had that, but he was black. And that was a rarity. Yeah. He was black.
1: Yeah. and,
2: and, and, he pulled me aside and I was only very young I've only just met him and he said to me, Roger, if you want to survive in this environment, if you go to work and you come to work and you do a good job, you're not going to be good enough. If you come to work and you do a right job, you're definitely not going to be good enough. If you come to work and you do a very, very good job, you've got half a chance. And I've taken that with me my whole life. And that's the only thing I would say, because I'm not here to pat myself on the back and make, you know, and to sort of gloat about what I've done. Not at all. Mm. All I've ever do, done is I try to be the best at what I can do.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's it. And, and, yeah. and by doing that, I've been very, very, very fortunate that one or two people have given me an opportunity without seeing the color of my skin. John Beck, and I want to say it because it's important that it said, John Beck, Lincoln City Football Club. There was no black physios around when I was here. There was one or two, very few, and they came and they went. Sam Allardyce, when I went to Notts County Football Club, what he got was he got an abusive letter, racial abusive letter, saying the only thing you can do is employ a black physio. All right. Um, Mark Webber. All these people gave me an opportunity that you know, there's no other black person around doing this thing at that time. So if they had an issue, they got have quite just said, no, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and you've got to grab the opportunity and you've then got to be better than the rest. And I've experienced in certain environments, feeling that I can't progress. And the reason why I left the Air Force was that same sentence we probably all heard before, that glass ceiling.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You can see promotion, but you can't get there you just keep hitting your head on something you can't figure it out because you can see stardom but you just cannot get there and so i met and saw too many people that i looked and thought you should be making progress but you're not making progress wonder why that is and i didn't want to experience that so i just and i knew i was better than that and so i wasn't afraid to take my own path so don't be afraid um, grasp your opportunities, be better than the rest. And if you take those things, you've got half a chance.
0: That's really powerful advice. And I think that that will um, resonate with a lot of people because I know that myself and also a lot of my friends who are also from black backgrounds have the same advice growing up. That's what our parents tell us. You have to be twice as good um, to get to the same place. It's something that... You know you just grow up getting told that um so yeah it's it's really powerful to hear that and i'm sure that will resonate with a lot of people moving on to the diversity side of things obviously last year we saw events around the world become the catalyst for change and it also Sort of forced the hand of the motorsport community and Formula One in particular to take a look at themselves and the diversity or lack of within their sport as an onlooker to the sport. Now, what were your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I was there when Lewis Hamilton came into Formula One. You got to remember mm-hmm. that. So, you know, I started in two thousand and five, two thousand and five, two thousand and six, and Lewis Hamilton I think came in around about two seven, two thousand and seven, yeah. yeah. and I'd met him when he in the in junior ranks and uh, so when he was racing in gp2 met his father met him we've had conversations about certain things even at that time mm-hmm. uh, and it's great to see the might of the situation be recognized by all yeah and it's great to see it happening all over the world also equally at 52 you you've gotta remember i try to be a young professional footballer. So I've played in front of, you know, had 200, 300 people sat behind me and I, standing at that time, abusing me, racially abusing me and nothing you can do. And you know what? It was just a given. It was normal. We just got on. We didn't, you know, when I see young players now and I see 50 fans abusing them, I think, mate, that's nothing. I was a young 17-year-old kid, 16-year-old kid. And there they they, I remember a whole stand behind him, behind me, just abusing you. You know, we scored a goal at the other end. I'll tell you a story. We scored a goal at the other end. And one of the black players said, Roger, turn around and wave at them. I was pretty naive. So I turned around and waved at the crowd, man. Got the whole crowd. They wanted to come and climb over the fence. I won't say the word I wanted to say, but but anyway, look, so time's moved on. We've moved forwards. Things are different. And I don't think people should have to experience the same thing. I've got little ones at home and I don't want them to experience what I experienced. At some point they may have to,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: but um, as I said, they've got to be bigger and better than the rest. Uh, My little boys, I've just started him doing a little bit of go-karting. And, um, you know, yeah, we, you know, I already know that we're not going to have the financial might that some of these other parents have. And, um, but, you know, I still have a belief in my heart because I've come through in my own little world, in a very small world, right? Pushed through to something that, I never believed I could achieve as a young kid leaving home. I went to university, Pfft, mate. That was not wasn't the given when I left home, and so I went to university and I sat in amongst, you know, grade A students and outperformed them, mm-hmm. and still now can outperform them. Um, so I'm a big believer that if you have the the ability, that it will come through, and I know that. Yeah, Lewis. I know he says what he says about if you have a dream, but it, mate, that kid had ability. Trust me, because mm. I watched him in 2006, 2007 in the GP2. Mate, he had an ability. So it, 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 the opportunity is always going to come because he has he has a gift, and and that's uh, and as long as you've got that belief, as uh, things you're half a chance. So don't give up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Again, powerful advice and I'm sure those are words that our listeners will take on and um follow through. Very important to hear that as well. With regards to staying on the topic of obviously diversity and inclusion in F one particularly, we we think of diversity a lot of the time as the people that we see on screen and the drivers because they're the people that we are exposed to in a role such as Physiotherapy and performance coaching—it um, tends to sort of be one of the behind-the-scenes roles um, that we don't see so much on the screen. Comparing your time in the sport to now, do you do you think there's been a change in diversity, not just um, looking at race, but also gender and other sort of underrepresented backgrounds?
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a great demographic. When I watch um, Lewis. Um, I don't know the name of his physio, but uh, when I watch Lewis, and she's obviously a female, when I, when I see him with her, it just seems to work. And it just, you can see that it, it's, it's uh, you know, he's broken the mold by having a female and um, it works. And I can see that. And it's great to see. And um, she's pushing the boundaries for females. I've, I've employed a female in professional football and being criticised by a football manager at the time for recruiting a female into professional football. So I, I've seen that, you know, that's other things. And in, in terms of, um, I just think it's great what's happening. I think the great, there's, there is, um, you know, there's an energy out there for change uh, and it's important that, that uh, change does come because we've been waiting for this for a long time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you say that you had a bit of pushback from the manager in terms of employing a female physiotherapist. Why? Why do you think there is that pushback? What What are the sort of the barriers? Why are some people not so kind of accepting?
2: Old school, sorry. Yeah, straight in <laughs> the deep end, old school, and you know, you you you, you can't change people's um, you can't change people's perception by what you do. And but you know, when you talk about a male dominant dominated environment and the ignorance sometimes of the the people around, you can't change that but only just by sort of being on that ship and helping to sail that ship, steer the ship. You know, if you jump off then they they, they walk down the road with the ignorance. So so, so it's. I just think it, at that time was ignorance in football, and it, it really is down to that one word, ignorance. And we see a lot of ignorance, don't we? We all. That's what this is all about, isn't it? Yeah. It's Ignorance, isn't it? So it's good to challenge ignorance, and it's good to keep questioning it. Um, you just got to have conviction because yeah. you're going to get you're going to get people challenge you as well, and you've got to have the conviction and the belief. And, you know, my parents came to this country and um...
0: (sighs) take your time it's fine Um,
2: they couldn't give much um, but um, what they could give me was belief Mm -hmm. and um... Mm.
0: and that's what got you to where you are yep well they did a good job then didn't they (laughs) they did a brilliant well you job. know you,
2: you can you, you can get up every day and you can fight and people ask me why do i fight the way i do and that's that's it it's just all i can do i don't know any difference i wake up in the morning and uh i realize i'm gonna have some a few challenges i have those challenges every day mm-hmm. but i'm not afraid to to, to to face those challenges and i think that has to be the case and the youngsters out there who are coming along and i'm on the way out i'm not on the way in um they need to face those fight and they need to have conviction and belief and come through because although this is a movement right now, there's still going to be an underbelly that doesn't go away and that's going to stay. So we have to stick with the fight.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that, um, God, it's made me emotional too. (laughs) I think that, um, yeah, the importance of belief in yourself can't be, can't be underestimated at all, but, as we all know, and as we've mentioned before in the podcast, it shouldn't necessarily just fall on the people themselves to you know fight the battle and um, and be the catalyst for change. In every single instance, uh, there are going to come to points where you do need wider support from whether it's the sport the organization whichever whichever it might be what sort of things do you think can be done to support people from underrepresented backgrounds that are coming into the sport so that it's not just a constant thing of hitting glass ceilings or feeling like you're battling against um this undercurrent that you just can't seem to to break through without overwhelming effort
2: i think that um you know when i was coming along i always felt that um I was that one percent. Uh, you know, I went to university, and I was that one percent.
1: Yeah,
2: and, and that was it. And I, you know, and and I think certainly, if we're going to work on percentage, then maybe the government should change it, say ten percent or twenty percent, and then that way, you know, certainly the hierarchy have a have a responsibility to meet that criteria. Mm-hmm. And I think if you can't steer, if, if people at the top at the top can't steer what they need to do in order to push through to, to, to give people the opportunity of diversity, then we need to change it. And we say, well, we want 20% and that's that. And so, and so if that's how it starts and 20% f- filter through, then, then, then that's where we've got to, we've got to take it. Um, it's a funny thing that you go to America and there's greater opportunity in America for diversity, but yet still there's racism is such an in your face thing. And, and 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 racism, trust me, is in the UK. Mm-hmm. It's just underground, just not in your face. And I've my parents, I've got you know, i got family that live in America. It's just if you're if they don't like you, because the color of your skin, it's in your face. Bang, no, no. But yet still, I can watch a program and see diversity straight away. And it's strange. And I can't figure that why that's so different in the UK. So I don't know the answer. If I'm brutally honest, I don't know. I just think that people have just got to give other people an opportunity. And again, I've just been very fortunate. Those people have given me an opportunity. Um, And, you know, I'd like to think it was my ability rather than the percentage.
0: Yeah. I was about to say that I think that, um, of course, the people that gave you opportunities have helped you along the way. But ultimately, it's come down to your ability and your talent. They wouldn't have given you the opportunities had you not been uh, right for the job. Mm-hmm. And I don't think yeah. we should downplay the fact that you're there because of merit. And the same as every other person from an underrepresented group that will eventually get into motorsport or a different sport, whichever it might be. There might be people that give you opportunities along the way, but ultimately, it still comes down to your talent. That's what it is.
2: I think it's happening. And I think, I think you know... Um, people of diversity are are looking at opportunities and applying for positions that once upon a time they wouldn't apply for. You know, when I was a young professional, well, try to be a professional football, believe it or not, I was a goalkeeper, which at the time there wasn't any black goalkeepers with exception to one man and a chap called um, Alex Williams who played for Manchester City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was my hero because there was no other black goalkeepers at that time. Now I watch TV at the weekend and I'm looking at black goalkeepers. I mean, it's great, and people given the and we were always considered um, because they don't, you know, a goalkeeping position has to be a real steady person, and you can't be, you, you, you know, you can't be too, because um, uh, the right word be you, you, you've really got to be in a, a stable head and a real steady hand because it, it, mistakes cause goals in that position, and so we would never. I think they never thought that black players were appropriate for that position. And so they gives an opportunity, whereas now they're there. So I think it is happening. And I I you know, yes, change might take it might be, be slow, but as long as change is going in the right direction, then I think it's great to great to see. So uh, I think more um more black or more diverse cultures need to apply for these positions and it will start to happen, you know. Um, so and culturally as well you know, is it, you know, motorsports are very expensive sport? So it's not considered something that you would necessarily look at as a, as a career direction because it's blacks don't tend to, or, or diverse, I keep going blacks, but I, sh- I should say diverse cultures don't go towards that direction. Um, but I think as time's going on, um, you know, I've taken, when I've taken a little boy karting. I've seen more, uh, you know, people of color with their children, having a go at carting. It's great to see, um, you know, whereas you listen to Lewis Hampton, and he says they're the only ones that turned up. Yeah. You know? So, um, so it's, it is happening.
1: I think the power of a role model and of visibility can never be underestimated because mm. it is such a powerful thing to have someone that you can look up to and who inspires you in a field that you want to follow. And I don't know, it just gives you that inspiration to go on and achieve your goal so yeah it's brilliant to hear that in your position now with goalkeepers as you said you're now seeing people black people black goalkeepers whereas previously that was quite a rare occurrence um, and then again in the case of your son with with carters as well going back to your career just to just to round things up was there anything that you noticed in the other sports that you were involved with that can be used or could be used to improve diversity in Formula One. Do you think?
2: I would say, if they can, it needs to be a better level of financial support, and then that way you'll see it really will open up. If they can support the lower ranks, I spoke to when I when I left Formula One and I started rebel asked me to look after this a young driver, and he was fifteen and a half or sixteen, round about there, and he was second best in the world at go karting, and he was a British champion, and he was a Red Bull driver. And uh, unfortunately, didn't make it, but I spoke to him recently and, uh, and he said, Roger, do you know what it costs to do a European season for a, 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 a cadet, which is probably around about 12, 13, 14? I said, no, tell me. Half a million quid. Wow. There you go. £500,000. That's
1: insane. Just to do, that's
2: one season, European season, £500,000. So there's your diversity. Already,
1: mm.
2: you can see the difference and the reason why, because most people of diversity have not been successful enough to raise that level of finance. And so that's your problem. And the, and Lewis Hamilton's has already iterated that same point. He says there's some great drivers that didn't make it because of the financial restrictions. So I just think, I, I still believe that you still got to have something inside you. Why make, what makes it always be, about, uh, uh some of the other drivers, it, you know, and, and that's because where he was raised. He's just got that inner fight mm-hmm. and you can see it in, in your races and that's the difference. And I can see that. There's just, just a difference. There's an inner fight in his belly. So hierarchy, F1, support the junior ranks. In football, you know, it's different. You can just kick a bag of wind around anyway, can't you? Um, and so, but then what they're doing is they're going into the backyards of, of cultures, of locations, of kids that, that, you know, that are, are, are bad kids come from poor situations, um, and they're giving them opportunities to kick a ball around and they're proving to be great players. So I think that's the sort of thing that, that Formula One or motorsport has got to try and do. It's got to try to financially, if it can support that lower echelons of society or or into the backyards of of people's homes to allow them the opportunity to to get involved in this without the half a million pound price tag, you know, that you're going to get to the age of 12 and go, I can't go anywhere from here from this. son.
0: I really, really enjoyed that conversation with Roger, powerful and inspiring advice as a result of the life experiences and career that he's had so far. As we saw in the conversation, it can be such a heavy topic and so difficult to talk about at times, but we are so grateful for the guests that join us on this podcast and share their experiences because it is such an important topic.
1: Yeah, it's completely understandable why it can be such an emotive subject, especially when you consider that Roger was forging a career in such a tough time in recent black British history. But he held on to the belief that his parents gave him and pushed through the adversity around him to achieve something greater, despite the glass ceilings he witnessed and spoke of
0: and he definitely did break those glass ceilings and managed to gain a variety of experiences within elite sport and even within each role itself, particularly in motorsport with both rally and F1, where there were such varying responsibilities to take on, much more than the ordinary person would consider to be a physio's role. We also talked about the influential figures in sport who have given him opportunities throughout his career, seeing past the color of his skin, even despite backlash in some instances. But of course, it's also important to remember that without talent, hard work and dedication, these
1: opportunities wouldn't have come his way. Exactly, Ariana. It's so good to recognise that the motorsport industry has diversified slightly more now compared to when Roger was starting his career. For example, we have people like Angela Cullen, Lewis Hamilton's performance coach, who is the only woman in this field on the grid. Of course there is a lot more work to do but there is progress and what a statement it is to have the most dominant athlete within f1 and his performance coach both being from underrepresented groups thank you so much to roger for joining us that was one of my favorite episodes so far completely authentic and straight from his own lived experiences if you enjoyed this episode too why not check out some of the sound bites from our other episodes on our instagram at we are driven by diversity That's
0: all from us. Get subscribing and drop us a message on Insta to let us know what you think of season two so far.